What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome in, everyone. Josh Pate here. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast on the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network. The way it works quickly and then we dive right in in less than a minute is I take your questions from the Late Kick Live YouTube chat to the YouTube comment sections to my email, which is joshpate706 at gmail.com or my Twitter account at Late Kick Josh. You guys flood me with questions throughout the week and I can't always answer them on the live Late Kick shows on YouTube. So we do an extra podcast and who knows, we may even bump up production from this because I got all this equipment in my apartment and I'm sitting around half the time doing nothing. So I've got a bunch of questions in front of me. I'm ready to go. We're going to span all over the place. Some of you want to talk about rules. Some of you want to talk about behind the scenes stuff. Some of you want to talk about movies. And to be honest with you, I just ate and downed four shots of espresso. So I'm here to talk about all of it. Let's get it started here. Zach on YouTube, going back to your comments about Texas and how their athletic director situation has developed. Are there any other programs nationally that you believe are being stunted in terms of growth? by a lack of effort in their program or just one key change from taking steps forward. Yeah, I think so, Zach. Now, what he's talking about is the other night I did a segment on Late Kick Live. I think it was the Sunday show. Yeah, it was. Where I was talking about Chris Del Conte, who is the new athletic director at Texas. He's been there a couple of years now. And I talked about all the glowing reviews people close to Texas have given me behind the scenes and on record about him and how it sounds to me much like how LSU insiders were talking about when Scott Woodward came aboard and replaced Joe Oliva. Now, I'm not saying, as some people suggested in the comments section, I'm not saying Scott Woodward, after being in town 12 months, won LSU a national championship. What I am saying is he got a lot of things right in their athletic department to where there's no friction, where there shouldn't be friction. You can't afford to. If you're competing against Alabama every year, you can't afford to have friction. If you're competing against Oklahoma every year, you can't afford it. So I think Texas internally, has gotten a lot of their mess solved. Now we find out, as I said on the show the other night, if Tom Herman is the right head coach for the job. And if he's not, they'll make a move. But we'll find out because there's no more excuse for people to use in lieu of just him getting the job done or not. But Zach asks, are there other programs that maybe don't have their affairs in order and they are handcuffing themselves from the inside out? Yeah, Zach, I think so. I think you could describe USC this way. Now, I'm not going to dive into the specifics. Partly, but mainly really because I'm not inside these programs. I get enough to know that USC has been twisted both ways towards Sunday internally for quite a while. And Michigan had been that way for a while. Alabama prior to Saban was like that for a long time. I think Florida State has suffered from this recently. I think Miami has suffered from this recently. So yeah, there are a lot of places. And just look at the places. You don't really have to be a rocket scientist or even a hardcore fan. Where do they have Huge tradition, endless amounts of money, great facilities, and yet still you see underachievement. Wherever those elements are in place, that's where you have the situation that Zach described. Moving on, Trevor on Twitter. I was born in Tennessee in 03. I'm 16 right now. I turned 17 in December, but as you can tell, I missed out on the Peyton Manning and T. Martin days. I've got two years in high school left. I'm considering buying season tickets for Tennessee games for the next two years since they're on Saturdays and I can go. I'm also working hard to get into Tennessee when I get out of high school. Do you think my parents and I should save up money 
to get the season tickets. That was Trevor on Twitter. Now, I answered him in longer form, but this is, I thought it applied to just the general population too. This is the situation I was in. I didn't by any means grow up rich. Um, I didn't grow up, you know, wanting for much either, but I couldn't afford season tickets, suffice to say, when I was coming out of high school or in high school. But I loved college football. I mean, I ate, slept, breathed college football. I may or may not, but definitely did run an illegal. Uh, how should I phrase this? Yeah, I'll just call it what it was, a gambling ring in high school. And the reason I didn't get in trouble, guys, is because we had administrators and teachers involved in the gambling ring as well. But just, I mean, we love the sport. So I grew up in central Georgia. That's all we talked about. So what I'm telling you that for is I spent every dime I had to go to games. Two things. When I was in middle school, all my allowance went to WWF pay-per-views. And then when I got in high school and then college and whatnot, like every dime I had was spent to go to college football games. I so vividly remember it was 08 and 09. The SEC championship game was right in my backyard. It was in Atlanta every year. So that was the first and second times that Meyer and Saban faced off in Atlanta for the SEC championship game. And I remember both times just feeling like I had to be there. Gotta be there. And I had visions one day of covering the sport professionally, but I certainly wasn't at the time. And so I just had to be there. So I remember how much I paid. I paid $325 for an upper level ticket for the 08 game. I paid $307 and change for the 09 game, another upper level ticket. Uh, the first year Florida beats Bama, the second year Bama beats Florida. But my point is, I don't know how I would have spent that combined 600 some odd dollars otherwise. What I do know and what I told Trevor is I'm a big believer in buying memories because I can tell you everything about that trip that I took with my buddies to those games. I can tell you about the games themselves. I get to tell you I was there from now until eternity. I remember being underneath the loading docks there at the Georgia Dome and seeing Florida's bus pull up and saw Urban Meyer walk by. I interviewed him last week. Think about how surreal that is for me from paying $300 to sit in the upper levels and watch someone coach to having them talk with me 20, 25 minutes on a one-on-one -on -one setting. But I remember Aaron Hernandez walked by and I looked at my friend at the time and said, that guy looks like, you know, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I said he looks like. Still a little sensitive of a subject, but um, I remember how intimidating that Florida team looked getting off the bus. Just some memories that I had. I remember turning around and seeing the media credential entrance and watching all these folks who get to cover this game for a living, they're actually getting paid to be here, whereas I had to pay to be here and wanting so bad to be part of that crew. And I wasn't at the time, and I am now. And it's really, really fun. But my point is, if you can afford it, man, I'm not telling you to eat ramen noodles for a month in lieu of getting regular food, but if you can afford it, man, I, um, I always advise people, if it's going to be a memory, if it's a memory that you're buying, then yeah. I recommend you do it. I am case on YouTube chat asks, what do you think the ceiling is for schools like Missouri, Ole Miss, South Carolina, the schools that don't have top 10 classes every year? We've seen Ole Miss, Missouri, and South Carolina do great things in the past decade, but is it still possible given the facility and recruiting gap that continues to widen? No, it's not possible on a year in year out basis. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. What is possible? is if you can 
recruit right and develop your roster the right way and be a special preparation type of team. We've talked about what that means before. In other words, don't try and out Georgia, Georgia or out LSU, LSU. If you have a fraction of their resources, they're going to beat you every time when you try and play that game. So play a different game. Chip Kelly did this at Oregon. We've again talked about this a lot of times. Chip Kelly walked into Oregon and realized, I can't recruit like Southern Cal. I'm not going to have a roster like Southern Cal. Therefore, I'm probably going to need to go about things a different way than Southern Cal does. And he did. And he became the best program in the Pac-12 and one of the best in America as a result of that. So at Missouri, South Carolina, Ole Miss, that's been my advice. I don't know that they listen, but that's been my advice. But the second part is the way that you can win 10 games in a season, the way that you can contend for an SEC championship in a given season is to build towards the season. At Alabama, every year they expect to win a national championship. At Georgia, it's like that. LSU is like that. But at the same time, they're built to be able to do that. You're not at Missouri. What you can do is you can circle 2022 and you can develop and build your roster to where you know at the quarterback position, that's where you're going to peak. You're going to have a senior-laden offensive line. You're going to have a veteran front seven defensively. You got a couple of really good corner prospects that should have developed by them. And hey, you can fill the remaining holes with Juco and transfer sprinkle talent, as I like to call it. And 2022, that's going to be the year. If we do anything in any other year, that's great. But 2022, that's the year we're circling. To me, that is how you could do it at Mississippi State, Ole Miss, uh, South Carolina, places like that. That's how I think it's possible. But I know that at the same time, you guys don't necessarily want to hear that because you're as emotionally invested as a Georgia fan is. Why shouldn't you get as much a return on your emotional investment as a Georgia fan? I'm not here to knock that mentality, guys. I tell you all the time, I wholeheartedly support your high expectations if you personally have invested at a high level. Edward on YouTube, what do you think about Jared Garantano? And if he can retain the starting position at Tennessee as quarterback, will there be a battle? Do you think he's proven himself enough to hold the job? No, Edward, I don't think he's proven himself enough to hold the job. If, you, if you're talking about being a legitimate team, a legitimate contender, someone we're still talking about in November, then no, he hasn't. There's no quarterback on that team that has proven themselves to that degree. So yes, I think there'll be a battle. I think losing spring greatly hurts, obviously, Harrison Bailey, who I think was the most talented quarterback the moment he stepped on campus. Now, Talent and skill are two very different things at any position, especially the quarterback position. Yeah, I think there'll be a battle there. Uh, truth be told, I think a lot of Tennessee fans are pulling for Harrison Bailey because you know that you have a self-imposed, or at least you think you know you have a self-imposed ceiling with Garantano, whereas it's a lot riskier to go with a true freshman in Harrison Bailey. But if you know the ceiling's higher, I think some people are willing to just grin and bear that. Seth, in the email inbox, favorite sports and favorite non-sports movie. My favorite sports movie, Seth, is Field of Dreams. I grew up a huge baseball fan. In fact, I saw on Twitter today, the uh, Fox Sports Braves um, Twitter account put out a replay of the Sid Bream slide when the 1992 NLCS, and those, those are just burned into my memory. I remember exactly where I was. Just like I remember that same year, 1992, that sporting event and the, who was it? It was uh, Miami and Alabama, I believe, that year. Yeah, that was the Stallings National Championship year for Alabama. Those two sporting events were the first two times I was allowed to stay up past my bedtime. I was seven years old. And so I remember that. And 
I really love Field of Dreams because I'm a baseball romantic, but at the same time, I don't think you have to be a baseball fan to love Field of Dreams because really, I don't think Field of Dreams is a baseball movie. It's a movie about something a lot deeper than baseball. It just happens to have baseball as one of the centerpieces. As for non-sports movies, I don't think you can go wrong with Shawshank Redemption. Uh, if you call Forrest Gump a sports movie because there are elements of sports in it, I think that one's up there. But Shawshank Redemption, I've only met one person in my life who openly stated they did not like the movie. And that even accounts for these sweater vest wearing, pinky out when they sip their tea, purists, cinematic purists, you know, the ones who think that Die Hard's a terrible movie, but The English Patient is must see. Even those people like Shawshank Redemption. So I'm going Field of Dreams and Shawshank on that one. Uh, let's flip this page here. Very, as you can hear, hear that folks, very, very technically advanced. Jack, in the email inbox, talking about Alabama, I really think Pete Golding was unfairly dragged by many in our fan base. Knock on wood, but if we can maintain health, I believe we'll really get to see who Pete Golding is and judge him then. But to kill him for last year to me is unfair. What's your take on the situation and the Bama defense going forward? Jack, I agree with you, but here's what's more important. I don't run Alabama. Nick Saban does. Nick Saban also agrees with you. The way I know that is because he retained Pete Golding. Nick Saban could probably give just about anybody he wants to to be his defensive coordinator. That position is worth its weight in gold on your resume. And yet he kept Pete Golding. You saw what I did last year. I've said this a few times about Golding. I've said the same thing about James Coley at Georgia for entirely different reasons on the different side of the ball. I thought they were unfairly criticized. And you're talking about Golding, so I'll talk about Golding. Who do you think is the best defensive coordinator Alabama's ever had? Your answer is either going to be Kirby Smart or Jeremy Pruitt. Can't go wrong with either. My question to anyone who's criticizing Golding is this. I'm not asking you, was their production down last year? Of course it was. I'm asking you, how would Jeremy Pruitt have done, given, as you pointed out, the rash of injuries they had last year? How would Kirby Smart have done? How would the best that they've ever had have done, given the limitations? Now mix in the fact that you had a first-year coordinator, and you also lost your quarterback down the stretch. You lost your defensive quarterback before the season even began in Dylan Moses. I mean, do you understand what kind of impact that was? All of a sudden, the week of their first game, they found out they were going to have to start two true freshmen at inside linebacker at Alabama. Not state, not A&M. The University of Alabama. So I agree with you, Jack. And I think that this year we'll learn a lot. I also, I've told you this a few times on this platform and on the YouTube show, Late Kick Live, Sunday and Thursday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, by the way. I've told you that a lot of them at Alabama flat out believe that they were behind the curve, strength and conditioning. They've made changes there. And if those changes yield positive results in terms of a greatly reduced number of injuries this year, then hey, maybe we do see a healthy Alabama defensive unit on the field. Gage on YouTube asks, do you think Sam Pittman can turn Arkansas back into a West contender like they were in the early 2000s? No, Gage, I don't. I'm just being honest with you. He asked also in this question, they have the facilities, but do you think he can recruit enough to win a few battles against big-time recruiters, enough for them to become a consistent eight-win team? Well, I think we have two different questions here, Gage. You asked if they could be an SEC West contender. I don't believe they can. I believe their best at Arkansas, given the current state of the rest of the West, is not going to be good enough. That's just my brutally honest assessment. But 
Can Sam Pittman win a few major recruiting battles? Absolutely, he can. He's one of the best in the world at what he does. Also, you asked, could they get up to the eight-win level? Well, I think that if you apply the blueprint at Arkansas, we talked about earlier with some other programs where you circle a year, a couple of years down the road, and you look to peak in that year, Arkansas could be a team that pops for more than eight wins. But I think it's far more likely that you see Arkansas win seven games, six games, nine games, five games, six games, nine games. Then you see them just go eight wins, eight wins, eight wins, eight wins. Because I think that's kind of the roller coaster you're going to have to go on there. I mean, the competition is too good. Let's just throw out their division schedule. You're a decided underdog every year before toe meets leather in week one. You know you're going to be a huge dog against LSU, against Alabama, against Auburn, against Texas A&M. That's four right off the bat that you got to play every year. We're already down to eight games. And then who else are you playing? Who are you playing cross division any given year? Who are you playing out of conference? I mean, you guys are supposed to go to Notre Dame this year. You'd be a decided underdog in that game if, if it gets played. And so it's just such a tall task. It's no knock on Sam Pittman at all. I ask you, kind of like I did with the Bama defensive coordinator spot, who do you think the best head coach in America is? Fill in that blank, whoever it is. I'm not here to argue that. But whoever that answer is, take that answer, grab them with the gla- grab claw machine, pick them up, pull the lever over to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and drop them at the University of Arkansas. How good are they doing? What kind of record are they putting up? It's just a lower ceiling there. And it gets lower every day the more coaches like Ed Orgeron do what they're doing and Jimbo Fisher's at Texas A&M and Nick Saban's at Alabama. Malzahn's not going anywhere. And now you brought all you did in Mississippi is you brought in Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach, who at the very least are high-profile candidates. I mean, you think about – forget about eight wins. How hard is it to get out of last place in the SEC West? Just – Pause for a second. Think about that. It's a, to me, the Arkansas job, you know, I talk about Malzahn and Auburn all the time. Arkansas jobs right there is one of the toughest jobs in America, too. Let's move on here. Marsha on Twitter had an interesting question. What is your schedule on Saturdays when you're covering a game? This varies wildly, Marsha, but I'll just, um, let's pick a generic game. I will either drive to where I'm going Saturday morning, or if we have to fly, I'll fly there Friday. Prefer the flight because I like sleeping in the city that I'll be in um, the night before. However, in the past, budget's been an issue a lot more than maybe it will be at 24-7. Very first world problems regardless. So I'll get there. I always like to get to a stadium three hours early. One of my favorite things to do is be in the venue before it opens to the public. It's my favorite part of the entire week. I don't know why, I guess it sounds kind of nerdish, but it is what it is. We all have a nerd tendency about us deep down somewhere. And mine is, I like walking in football stadiums when they're empty. And I'll just sit there. As I told you guys earlier, I'm no different than you are. They may put a microphone in front of my face and they may pay me to go to these things, but they're the suckers because I do it for free. I do it if they even made me pay just a little bit less. I do it at a discounted rate. Now, please don't tell management this because I do enjoy getting a paycheck for this, but I go in these stadiums that I grew up paying to get into and I saw them on TV every week and I have reverence for places like Bryant Denny stadium or college station or tiger stadium down in Baton Rouge, or even going outside of the sec, going out to the Rose bowl, you know, being at the Superdome for a national championship game or a sugar bowl. 
How awesome is that? Sanford Stadium. I grew up in the state of Georgia. You know how important those hedges are to people in the Peach State? You know how how revered a place like the Swamp is? Jordan-Hare Stadium, all the Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. So I'll just go and sit there. Half the time, I'll get there early. And I'm, I don't go to very many noon kickoffs because I'm always at the biggest games. And so I normally get there as the noon games are happening. I'll go out, especially if it's comfortable outside. I don't sit in the press box. I'll go out and sit in the middle of the stands. Uh, I'm one person in a 100,000-seat bowl, and I'll just take a couple of laptops out there and watch the noon game sitting out in the stands all by myself, maybe eating a press box hot dog. But I'll do that, Marsha. And then, of course, you've got the game. You do your uh, press avails afterwards, and you talk to players and coaches that are made available. And then I pretty much rinse and repeat, depending on what I have to do. If I have to get out of town, I'll leave about uh, two hours after the game, just let traffic die down. But normally, I'm not in any hurry to leave. And I know a lot of you, if you go to a game, you're leaving as soon as the game is over. And so you're probably sitting in traffic, and you're listening to a post-game show or whatnot on the way home. And then you get home, and you're probably watching some kind of wrap-up show or the West Coast games as you wind down and go to bed. I'm sitting in an empty stadium again as the mowers are in the background, uh, you know, cleaning up all the divots and putting in some seating and getting ready to take care of the field for the next week. And it's all empty. Coaches may be on the field doing their coaches shows. Maybe some news crews are still doing stand-ups, but it's just kind of calm before and then calm after the storm. And I'll sit right out there in an empty stadium again, and I'll watch the late games because I would rather sit in a stadium than sit still on the interstate. So that's my uh, game day routine, Marsha. Bogdan on Twitter, when I was watching the show the other night, you talked about Florida and how they have a couple of good recruiters and not much after that. Uh, and I think I can also apply that to Auburn. I know they're surrounded, but better recruiting teams like Georgia, Alabama, and LSU, just to name a few, make it hard on them. Do you think Auburn is low on great recruiters or just surrounded by teams better at it? I don't think Auburn's recruiting poorly at all. I do think this is the toughest job in America, given the marriage of, pay attention to this part now, given the marriage of expectations and reality, I think the Auburn job is the hardest in America. The reason I would say it's harder than Arkansas, for example, is because people at Arkansas do not expect to win the SEC next year. People at Auburn do. And so the task is still the same for Auburn. They got to play Bama every year. They got Georgia every year on top of LSU and Texas A&M and the like. And so and they played Florida last year. So I don't think Auburn's recruiting poorly at all. In fact, I think they're overachieving, Bogdan. I want you to consider this. If it were 10 years ago and you're just looking at the year 2020 through a 50,000-foot perspective, a 50,000-foot faraway lens, and I were to tell you, Nick Saban's still going to be at Alabama. He will have won like three or four more national championships. Georgia will not have Mark Richt anymore. They'll have Kirby Smart. They will be humming. LSU will have Ed Orgeron, of all people, but, but he will have just won a national championship. So they'll be on fire in their own home state. And teams like Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson will be raiding South Florida for talent. What did I just tell you? I told you, University of Alabama is still a power. Therefore, it's going to be tough for you to recruit in-state. I told you the Atlanta metro area, where you go for a lot of talent, will have Georgia in it to deal with at their very height. Georgia's recruiting better than they ever have. Louisiana's a place in the past that Auburn really did some business in. Well, you got LSU winning a national championship, so they're really tough to contend with down there. 
And then you got South Florida where Auburn has done some business in the past too. And yet you got everyone raiding South Florida. So my point is, if I were to tell you that 10 years ago, you'd probably say, we're going to struggle to crack the top 20, aren't we? And yet there's Auburn every year sitting right around that six to 12 range in the recruiting rankings. I think they're doing a really good job. Again, think about this too. What's the huge advantage at Auburn? They don't have a unique tradition, unlike any other program here. There are teams down here with more national championships, more draft picks. So they're not selling a huge trophy case. They're not selling the NFL draft more than Alabama can or LSU can. Uh, They're not bad in any of these departments. I'm just asking you, think about it. Where's their big edge? Their facilities aren't better than the top programs down here. And yet they're still hanging with the top programs. They're not out recruiting Alabama, but I'll tell you this, they're recruiting better than programs like Florida over a four-year stretch. You know, they're up until recently, they were recruiting right on par with or better than Texas A&M. A&M had a good class this last cycle, but they're recruiting comparable to A&M. Think about the advantages that those programs should have over Auburn. So I think they're doing a pretty darn good job. Go Tigers 9 on YouTube. If the hype out of Baton Rouge is true about Miles Brennan, do you see LSU contending for another national championship? Well, it depends on what hype we're talking about. Do we believe, and this is a radical opinion, okay? There aren't very many people out there who think what Joe Burrow just did is duplicable. I'm sure there may be a fringe, a minority fringe of people who think that now that we've got the offense figured out, every quarterback should do that. Well, of course, we know that's lunacy. So you're not asking that. I'm not suggesting that. And most of our listeners, who I know to be pretty sharp, aren't thinking that either. Will we get something comparable, loosely comparable production-wise, at least in the same neighborhood? I think that's even hard. But are you going to get high-level quarterback play? That I think it's reasonable to expect. Now, whether it comes to fruition, that's what you're asking. Because you are definitely going to take a step back offensively. I look at Miles Brennan. And then I listen to what people down there say about him, most notably Ed Orgeron, who has not been bashful about saying, Miles Brennan's going to be the quarterback here, and I expect him to be a championship caliber quarterback. So you ask, can they contend for a national championship? Yeah, I believe they can. Uh, The path for anybody to repeat as a national championship is always very treacherous. Winning one period in the SEC is treacherous or otherwise. It's not an SEC thing. It's a national thing. However, I think this doesn't have so much to do with Miles Brennan as it has to do with a bigger picture issue. If you can guarantee me that entire roster is all in this year, I mean, they were, they were willing to go over a cliff for the guy standing to their left and right last year. If they still have that mentality, if the hunger is there to the degree it was last year, if that fire is still there, they will be talented enough. Mark my words. I don't care how many they just lost to the draft. They will be talented enough to win a national championship. If they don't win one next year, If they go nine and three, I do not believe that we'll look at them at the end of the year and say, well, you know, they just lack the talent to get it done. No, what will have happened is if they do go nine and three, they will have lost some close games, competitive games, games where a Bob play or two, that's an acronym I use, bounce of ball. You know, that ball is not shaped like a baseball. It's, It's round. It bounces funny ways, tips balls in the air, sometimes fall to the ground, sometimes fall in a defender's hand and get taken 80 yards to the house. Sometimes you fall in a fumble. Sometimes it bounces away from you. These sorts of things determine the outcomes of football games. Those sorts of things will determine LSU season next year. When you're as talented as they are, that is the way it happens. Think about you guys playing Alabama 
this past year. You won that game by one possession. Think about the opening drive for Alabama. No defender got a hand on Tonga Vailoa. He just dropped the ball on the ground, and you recovered it and drove right down and scored, and it was your game throughout. What if he doesn't drop that ball is my point. So those sorts of things, I'm not taking away from your win there. I'm saying those sorts of things are either going to make you or crush you, but it's not going to be for lack of talent. And I don't think it's going to be for a lack of Miles Brennan being good enough to win games. Matt on Twitter, we need some context for this one, Matt. So I was suggesting, well, first off, I was suggesting never to expand the playoff on one of the recent shows, but I also granted you that I think it's probably coming. So my next point was whether we go to six teams, eight teams, or 100 teams, I don't support auto bids for the G5, and I don't support auto bids for anyone. I don't think anyone's conference should be guaranteed a spot before the season is played. I want, let's say it's eight teams. If it's an eight-team playoff, I want the eight best teams. That's what I want. That's what I think is best for the sport. It is a blind test. I couldn't care less at the end of the year what conference you're in. Let's play the conference games. Let's play conference championships. But when it's time to select for the college football playoff, we're not trying to find out who's the best in the ACC or the SEC or the Big 12. We're trying to find out who the best teams in the country are. Therefore, I'm taking the lines off the map. There are no conferences in this conversation. There are just 130 teams, and we're going to pick the best ones. With that in mind, now that's my philosophy. It won't be adopted in all likelihood, so don't worry if you don't like it. I don't think you have much to worry about. Matt on Twitter asks, if that were the case, do you think a committee would be willing to put, for example, four SEC teams in on a given year and leave out a weak conference champion where they had beaten up on each other and a three-loss conference champion emerged? If it's the same committee as today, I have a tough time seeing them do this. For instance, there was an Auburn team that lost to Bama and LSU, two top five teams. If they were 10-2 and but third in the SEC West, do you think any committee would ever put them in? No, probably not. Therein lies my problem. You see, there are two different discussions here. If you want to tell me right at the onset, I am not for just a power rating top eight teams from any committee being led in a playoff. I want equal representation. I believe every conference should have a seat at the table. And that's what I think is what's best for the sport. If you tell me that, of course, I disagree with you. But if you tell me that right at the outset, I don't have a problem because you're not being intellectually dishonest with me. We just disagree. There's a big difference. But if you come to me and you say, oh, I'm just like you, Josh, trust me, we want the same thing. You want the best in and I want the best in. But then it comes selection time and you tell me, Auburn can't be in. They didn't win the SEC. Auburn can't be in. They've got two losses. I got an undefeated team over here. You can't put a two-loss team over an undefeated. Well, yeah, I can. I certainly can. You don't even stop to tell me who your undefeated team faced. Because here's the fact of the matter. They're going to be given years in college football where you're going to have a two-loss team and you're going to have an undefeated team. And that two-loss team, even if I take the losses into account, they'll still have two or three wins better than the undefeated team's best win. A lot of people don't care about that. I do. You are not, let me repeat very slowly, this is not the NFL. You are not always what your record says you are in college football. But I've got a crowd, and they're pretty sizable, who swear to me that going undefeated is the hardest thing to do in sports. And if you go undefeated, 
no matter what, conference champ, undefeated, you belong in. Well, if that's the case, what if you just played a high school schedule? What's the, what's the limit here? Where's the baseline? How good does the schedule have to be? How strong does the strength of schedule have to be? Because all you tell me is, oh, forget it. Now, if they're 11 and one, crucify them. But if they're 12 and 0, I don't care who you played. I don't care if you went to the local peewee and just ran people out of the building 12 weeks in a row. Undefeated is undefeated. No, undefeated is undefeated. But if you think undefeated deserves an automatic seat at a playoff table, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. So I'll never agree to that. Uh, But Matt, no, I don't believe if you expand it to eight, that there is any committee out there that would put four SEC teams or Big Ten teams or in any given year, let's just say the ACC exploded. I don't think that there's a committee out there that would put four teams from the same conference on it. And their justification would be because it is, quote unquote, bad for the sport. Dan, in the email inbox. Ooh, this is a good one, Dan. I guarantee you, for those of you who just disagreed with me on the last answer, you'll agree with me here. What should the NCAA do about targeting and instant replay? I have to confess, when I watch games, I get really frustrated by how quickly targeting is called and how many times replay is used. Should there be an intentional targeting rule and then an unintentional targeting rule? And that's Dan via email. Yes, I certainly think so. I know a lot of you out there don't like soccer. I'm not a huge soccer fan anyway, but I'll tell you one thing soccer gets right that currently college football does not get right. And that is the difference between a yellow card and a red card. Now, I don't necessarily know how all that works, but think about the concept here. I mean, we've got a situation right now, and they did take a step, Dan. Let me pause. They did take a step, did the rules committee, to move in the right direction on this. And if you missed it, this last year was the first year where they adopted some new rules on targeting. And whereas previously, it was, if there's any doubt, throw the flag, and then we'll kick him out of the game. Well, now it's throw the flag, but when you replay it, there has to be overwhelming evidence that there was targeting. So now if there's any doubt whether it was targeting, pick the flag up. Now that's certainly a move in the right direction because what you think about now is only real examples of targeting are going to be flagged and BS flags, ticky-tack flags will be picked up. And we saw that happen a number of times this last year. And at that point, I don't have that big a problem with what we're dealing with because there are hits that we have to get out of the game. Now, I don't think very many people disagree on that. It's just that sometimes flags are thrown on perfectly legal hits. But I agree with you here. I think there's room for an adjustment here where you got something that is legitimate enough to throw a 15-yard personal foul penalty, but at the same time, incidental targeting maybe or versus, versus intentional targeting, red flag, you're immediately out of the game. I would like to adopt that system. So I agree with you in principle here. We don't actually have to use yellow and red flags, mind you. You can just announce it on the microphone like normal adults do. Uh, Let's see, Terrence on Twitter. What a loaded question, Terrence. Do media people get along at games? You know, this is going to shock you, Terrence. But for all the blustering back and forth and all the posturing back and forth and all the keyboard muscles that some of these folks show off Monday through Friday, I've never seen an argument in person at a game. It may happen. I'm not saying it's never happened. And I'm sure someone has better stories than me, but I haven't seen it. I just see folks come in and do their job. I'll tell you what stands out to me. This is kind of a side note. 
here's what's fascinating to me. I'll, I'll climb up on the soapbox for a couple of minutes. So you guys don't get to see this. As I told you previously, I'm just a dude who grew up going to games, no different than any of you listening right now. Love the sport. I'll, I go to, I used to go to Georgia Tech games. I've been to Georgia games, Auburn, Alabama. If I could get there, I'd go. And so it just floored me whenever the opportunity to cover this sport for a living was put on the table. I worked my tail off to get there, make no mistake. But there are certain blessings that were put in front of me and opportunities that you know, I personally don't view as coincidence. I think there's a bigger plan in place that takes care of a lot of that. But regardless of whatever your belief system is, I went from observing to being able to cover what I'm most passionate about in the world, which is college football, recreationally at least. And so it's a huge deal. It's, what I'm saying is it's never been lost on me. I have never nonchalantly walked into a stadium to cover a game. I'm always in awe, just like you guys are. It's a huge, huge deal. It's a huge deal to interview head coaches. To me, they're bigger than rock stars. A lot of people grow up idolizing movie stars and rock stars. To me, football head coaches, those have been the peak celebrities in the American culture for me growing up because college football was the pinnacle of entertainment for me growing up. And you might wonder where I'm going with this. I'm going somewhere, but I'm trying to give you the backdrop of how I feel about this sport so you can understand. I feel like you guys would if you were in my position. I'm just a former fan that was given the ability to do this professionally, but I never lost the fanhood inside of me. Haven't to this day, and I won't. I'll promise you that. I won't. That's, I think that's why a lot of our content appeals to you because it's not manufactured. It's genuine. You can tell. You're very smart. You're very sharp. Just like back in the day when I used to listen to all these podcasts and watch all these shows, I can tell who's real about it and who's manufacturing it, who's just punching a clock in and out and trying to put in their three hours on air and then go home and they don't care about you and don't care about what they talked about that day. Well, I'm not on that side of the fence. I'm on the other side. Here's what would shock you. I go to these games and that's the greatest days of my entire year. Some of you go to a job that you hate. Just statistically, I see how many people listen to this program and more and more listen every week. And by the way, if you are, thank you for those five-star reviews and written reviews. And if you haven't given us one, please consider doing so. It's free and it takes like two seconds. But I know you guys. I talk to a lot of you. I, I know virtually all of you, either directly or indirectly. Some of you go to jobs you love, and that's great. Some of you go to jobs you just flat out hate. And even if you have a job you love, picture something in your life that you can't stand. And then picture your attitude when you're doing that thing. It would probably shock you if I told you when I walk into a press box on a Saturday afternoon, there are people being paid to cover this sport who look just like you do when you're doing something you don't like. And this has boggled my mind. It will boggle my mind until eternity. That there are people doing what you know I love to do more than anything in the world who just look at it kind of as a job. I don't care how long they've done it. I couldn't care less. I'll, if I were doing this when I was 115 years old, I'd still be freaked out of my mind to be able to do it. It's the biggest thrill of my life. It should be the biggest thrill of anyone's life. And yet there are folks, forget about whether they get along or not. I'm not even, that was the original question. I'm way far away from that. But just imagine walking into the press box of Neyland Stadium or Sanford Stadium or Clemson Memorial Stadium and seeing people with a frown on their face 
and walking around, you know, head down, oh, checking your watch. How much longer? Oh, the game hasn't even started. Have the teams even arrived? I've never understood how anyone could be like that, especially with how competitive this industry is to break into and how many people would crawl over broken glass to get into it. How do you ever accidentally find your way in here? I understand if someone ends up being a secretary. I got a buddy who is a secretary who hates his job. Hopefully, if you're a secretary, you love your job. But I got a buddy who's a secretary who hates his job, and he'll explain to me how he ended up where he is. And it just kind of, that's where he fell into place at. Well, okay. There aren't a ton of people who grow up dreaming on Saturdays about secretary positions. There are a lot of people who grow up dreaming about covering college football. So I could see how someone may plinko their way down into settling into a secretary position. I can understand what he's saying. I can never understand how someone's miserable covering college football. College football is what the miserable secretary daydreams about. Like you're doing what they'd love to do. I don't know. As you can hear, I'm on a soapbox. I've never understood how people could be anything less than passionate and just thrilled out of their mind to be able to do this for a living. But that's just me. Let's move on. I'll get in trouble. I'll end up dropping names. Audio Ghost on YouTube. What's a realistic record expectation for Texas A&M this year? Can Jimbo Fisher turn them into an elite force in the future like they've desperately wanted to be for so long? Yeah, I think he can. They're not missing anything. I said this when Sumlin was there. I thought this was the biggest underachieving program in America. I've thought that for a long, long time. There is no limitation. There is no ceiling there. I don't, I don't want to bore you with the list that I always go down, but everything you need to win at the highest levels of this sport A&M has. They've got it all. Try and think of something they don't have. The only thing you're probably going to go to is trophy case, bunch of national championships. And I'm just telling you guys, I talk to high school kids every year. They don't care about it. They think they are the ones that can fill the trophy case. So if you've got everything else taken care of, they think they'll fill your trophy case for you. But Jimbo Fisher needs an elite quarterback. That's what he needs. I got another question coming up about Florida in a second. And it's kind of the same theme, uh, loosely you got to be great at quarterback. This is not a generation ago. A generation ago would have been uh, the 2009 era. Think about that with a team like Alabama. Do you realize that we're only a little over a decade removed from a team with Greg McElroy under center winning a national championship? Think about that. Think about that for a second. You think Greg McElroy is starting at quarterback? Bless his soul. You think he's starting for Alabama today instead of Tua Vailoa? and Bama contending for a national championship? Absolutely not. Back then, they were able to bludgeon people to death, and they had such a roster advantage that, and they were going to for the next few years, that they could afford to have what you started to call game manager material at quarterback. You can't do that. Jimbo can't do that either. When you've got a Trevor Lawrence out there, and you got a Tonga Vailoa, or now a Bryce Young, or Mac Jones, and a loaded roster, you got Joe Burrow out there any given year, you got to be great at quarterback. A&M is not great at quarterback. They're not bad. And I know Kellen Mond's going to get a lot of preseason love, and no one's pulling for him harder than I am. Trust me. Just as much as I'm rooting for Tennessee to come back in the East, I'm rooting for Texas A&M to be a force in the West. I know it's selfish, but it's good for me. It's it's good for late kick. It's good for our our brand here. So I I know that maybe if you're a Texas fan, you you couldn't care less about what A&M's doing. But you, you understand I have different motivation than you. He's got to be great at quarterback. They're not there yet. Michael on YouTube, Dave Aranda's LSU defense last year was fairly low ranked. 
Given that the offense will likely be less explosive this season, do you think there's any chance of the defense improving? This is all relative. Uh, last year, one of the things I noticed about our LSU brethren was they were struggling to evolve their expectations defensively in the new era offensively. We've seen Alabama go through this. Georgia, if they ever evolve offensively, they'll go through the same thing. You're not going to have the top-rated defense in America and the top-rated offense. That's not going to happen. You've got to evolve what your expectations are and what your standard for greatness defensively is. And I focus on red zone defense. That's what I – third down defense and red zone defense, yards per play, stuff like that, the advanced metrics, that's what I focus on with these teams with more new age and aggressive offenses. And that's what LSU was last year. So Dave Aranda's defense was plenty good enough last year, plenty good enough. This year, Dave Aranda's gone. Not only is Joe Burrow gone and a lot of that offensive talent gone, so is Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda out. Bo Pelini in. This is one of the biggest question marks to me in college football. Now, what we should have learned already, if you haven't already, is don't question Ed Orgeron much on these personnel decisions. He has everything he's touched. Every string he's pulled has been made of gold so far. He was sold on Bo Pelini. Therefore, it doesn't matter if I have questions on him. Ed Orgeron is sold on him, but my questions remain. And my questions are, last time Bo Pelini was really a defensive coordinator in major college football was 07. And we just talked about two or three minutes ago, did we not, about the state of the game offensively and SEC, state of the SEC offensively in 2007 versus 2020. And I'm not saying that someone like Bo Pelini can't evolve his philosophy right along with the game evolving. Has he? Will he? Is he capable of that? That really is what remains to be seen to me. So, you, you notice I didn't even dive into personnel. Like I've got LSU's depth chart just like you do. I know who they've got coming in just like you do. I don't even think – I think it's a much more overarching question and answer than, well, here's who they have at outside linebacker, and here's who will replace so-and-so at defensive tackle. It's not even about that yet. That's a more granular October-November topic, if you catch my drift there. Oh, here's one. Zach via email. This is a good question here. I was just talking to someone about this today. Zach says, I was wondering if the SEC decides to have their season and other conferences or teams don't, can the SEC replace those opponents with someone from the SEC that they weren't originally scheduled to play? For example, LSU is scheduled to play Texas San Antonio, Texas, Rice, and Nichols. Could they instead schedule Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Missouri? Yes, Zach, they could. This scenario is on the table. I know this sounds kind of crazy. Last year, I think it was Wake Forest in North Carolina. I Don't quote me on that, but someone in the ACC did this last year. They played each other as a non-conference game. Two conference opponents played each other, but it didn't count in the conference standings. Well, that wasn't a radical season. That was just a radical decision. We may have a radical season on our hands. Now, on the Sunday night show, Late Kick Live on the YouTube channel, if you watch that, you heard me sort of tiptoe around a point that I was making. And I told you at the time, I am aware of conversations between a team and another team who aren't scheduled to play each other in week one, but each of them has a concern whether their respective opponent will be able to be on the field for week one. Since then, it's been reported, I believe, via the Paul Feinbaum show. And he is talking specifically about the teams I was talking about. He reported earlier today, I'm recording this on Wednesday, he reported 
Alabama and TCU have had conversations about playing in week one. Now, TCU is scheduled to play Cal. Alabama is scheduled to play USC. No one knows if the Pac-12 is going to be able to play this season, much less the first week of the season. So you have a team in the Big 12 and a team in the SEC saying, well, if you're out of an opponent and we're out of an opponent, why don't we just play each other? I mean, Bama's already supposed to play Southern Cal in Dallas. Fort Worth is right next door to Dallas. So it could work out with TCU. But there is another proposal here, or maybe a combination of proposals. Because like you said, what happens if you got several slots you have to fill for SEC teams that are out of an out-of-conference opponent? Well, what you can do is you can play, like the Pac-12 I know has talked about playing just everybody play everybody, round-robin style, in conference, and that's the season. I know you can't do that perfectly, symmetrically, if you have a 14-team league. Subtract yourself, of course. That's 13 teams. So there's one team that every team doesn't play. But yeah, I think that is on the table, Zach. I, listen, we talked to Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, just this week. Brandon Marcello had 40 minutes with him. And Sankey told us, point blank, we've got between 15 and 20 scheduled contingency plans. Of course, he wouldn't name them. I'd be surprised if he had all of them memorized because I'm sure that stuff is very fluid and changes by the day. But yeah, Zach, I, just suffice to say, this is on the table. All right, let's flip the page. You know, there was a question. I know it's here. I know it's here and I have skipped over it and I'm, I just teased it. So I am not going to leave it out. We answered that one. We answered that one. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. So the question is essentially Florida and that's not it either. Here we go. Okay. All right. This is from KW and it was in the YouTube and it was a really, really good comment. And I was not going to leave this one out. It's long. Bear with me. I have an important point to make on what I think you're missing. Now, this is KW talking to me. What you're missing when you discuss recruiting. You need great players to win a national championship, but you don't need elite players top to bottom. The teams that are normally in the playoffs have one thing in common, an elite quarterback. So far, I agree with everything he said. He continues, this is why I do not think a team like Florida has to just rip it on the recruiting trail. They've always had good to great talent. And if I could bet on a team getting a quarterback with that it factor outside of Bama, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson, I'd place my bet on Florida. So Tennessee, Georgia, Texas, and even Texas A&M can get all this recruiting hype, but it's all short-lived if they can't recruit and develop an elite quarterback. This is the main reason why teams with elite rosters underperform when they do. Listen, he's not disagreeing with me. KW, even if you think you're disagreeing with me, brother, you, I mean, you're singing to the choir or preaching to the choir, I guess. I don't know if anyone's ever sung to a choir. How arrogant if they do. He's preaching to the choir here, though, because he's right. You can. Uh, this is what has kept Georgia from winning a national championship, point blank. I mean, think about how close they've come, and then think about what would happen if you just traded quarterbacks. You know, if you put Tua Tonga-Vailoa on Georgia's roster when they played Bama, Georgia's a national champion. I mean, just flat out. The next year, you know, if, if they have a Joe Burrow instead of – you know, Jake Fromm, they're, they're a two-time national champion. They've got an elite roster. They lack an elite quarterback. Uh, listen, he's right about this. I think the point to be made here is if you've got an elite roster and an elite quarterback, well, you're going to be very tough to beat. LSU just proved that last year. But here's the point to make with Florida. Florida, to this point, is not recruiting top five classes. Like he said, like KW said, they're recruiting good classes. They're not outside the top 20. That's why I got to be careful when I talk about Florida. 
it sounds like uh, I always get accused of being a gator hater, quote unquote. It's only because I have high expectations for them. I want Florida to win just like Florida fans do. Again, it's good for me when Florida's good. And so, but it's hard because you got to be careful when you're critical of a team that's doing things very good. And Florida recruits very good. And they coach, they coach at an elite level. They develop at an elite level. They, they're not going any higher than there uh, than they are in those departments. But when you know you got to beat LSU and or Georgia every year, and if you if you don't see Georgia or uh, LSU in Atlanta again, you see Alabama there. When you got to beat these teams, and you know they're going to have really good quarterback playing, you know they're going to have great rosters. If you've only got a very good roster, like KW said, you got to have an elite quarterback. Now the next question is: Is Kyle Trask that? I don't know. Do you have the elite quarterback of the future on your roster? I certainly don't know that. And if you don't, is Florida going to recruit that guy and or develop that guy? This, by the way, is also the blueprint for Notre Dame to win a national championship. Notre Dame is not going to have an elite roster. They just That's the reality of modern-day recruiting. They are not going to match Clemson player for player. They're not going to match Bama player for player. If they were to get an elite quarterback in there, then that element at quarterback and a good roster in any given year, if things bounce your way, you could win a national championship doing that. All right, that's what we have for today. To be honest with you guys, I don't even know how long we just went. I just know I enjoyed it. And really, I could go for like another hour, but our podcast wizards, Tani specifically, who has to edit this, I don't think he wants that. He wants to eat supper. And the longer he has to edit, the less time he has. So I appreciate it. And like I said, I really appreciate the five-star reviews that you've been giving us. Again, if you want to get your questions submitted here, it's really easy. Multitude of ways. You can drop in the YouTube live chat. And a lot of you have lit that up. I mean, management here is very, very excited about the viewership and the traction that we have gotten, albeit in a very short period of time, with moving that entire late kick operation to uh, 24-7. So you can submit your questions on the YouTube live chat. I put a specific pinned comment below every video, every live video, late kick live video, where you can submit a question there. You can email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter. And if you're going to submit a question, I would prefer you do it in the DMs. I keep them open for everyone. Yes, even you. And it is at late kick Josh. And give me a follow while you're there. Because, hey, that's the main reason or the main way that I communicate with you guys during the week. But those five-star reviews, really appreciate it. We went over 100 this week. I say we just go over, over 1,000. And the more reviews you give me and the more traction we get, the more content we're going to pump out. And hopefully, the quicker college football season arrives. So until uh, this Sunday night, Thursday night, regardless of next time I see you, maybe it's not until this time next week on the Late Kick Extra Podcast. Take care. Stay safe. Appreciate you listening. God bless.